1: i'm sophie i'm yelly and this is she's all fat the podcast for fat positivity radical self-love and chill vibes only now in our
2: final season
1: on today's book club episode savala nolan author of don't let it get you down essays on race gender and the body but first our news corner
2: family we want to give a fatties of the week shout out to chub rolls a bay area group organizing fat and plus size skate sessions for all wheels ages abilities genders and orientations that sounds so cool heck yeah chub rolls is bipoc founded and
1: queer and trans led and we love their instagram at chub rolls with a z as well if you think that's sweet and radical like we do please join us in contributing to their gofundme linked in the show notes. The GoFundMe is for
2: travel accommodations to divert Sessions Skate Park in Santa Ana. They say, quote, because we are a community-based group, all funds and equipment have been either donation or out-of-pocket from the organizers. We'd really like to provide our members not only with the opportunity to feel welcomed and included in a park setting, but not have to worry about travel accommodations either. Can
1: you help these skating fatties experience fabulous fat fun in the sun in a
2: safe, judgment-free environment? each donation supports that goal check the show notes to show your support and if you have a fat related fundraising goal let us know and we will share it yeah
1: uh-oh i'm tear stained again from reading some of our family love letters we've received we've opened
2: a google form for you our beloved family members to write little notes of love to this fat community you have helped build we'll be reading and posting your letters all season long
1: Speaking of, we have a very special letter from H. I skimmed this letter before we recorded this, Sophie, and it's a good one, so get ready. Oh my god. Okay, I'm excited. Hey, people. I first want to share that I am so, so emotional that this podcast is airing its last season. SAF, you've been in my ears and in my heart for a while, and I've been recently listening to you over and over again. I think it is mostly because your voices represent Safe anchors for me now. That's so sweet. Oh, that's so nice. There are no words to express how grateful I am that you exist, breathe with me on planet Earth, and for all the work you've done with this podcast and outside of it. I understand how much emotional labor this is and will never take that for granted. As a Black, trans, non binary, neurodivergent person whose work is based on body and mind liberation, heck yeah. This podcast has been life-saving. I often redirect people towards it to avoid doing more emotional labor than I already do on a day-to-day basis. I am a trauma-informed astrologer, Reiki practitioner, tarot reader, and hypnotist. That sounds so cool. This person's so cool. Yes. (laughs) So emotional labor is a lot of my work in this world, but sometimes I am exhausted. It has mm. also been a way for me to identify the real ones. Meaning, when someone tells me that they know this podcast, my social justice clit immediately gets engorged <laughs> and wet. <laughs> oh my god! Incredible. I love it. <laughs> and- that me and my social justice clip think and value you (laughs) deeply and eternally finally Mm -hmm. i want to express love care and commitment to all people listening to this podcast to fat people people who live with disabilities to black people trans people neurodivergent people and all who do not live in the norm I value you and love you, and I wouldn't be able to breathe without you. You're so precious to me, but precious is two letters away from precarious, and so love and care ain't enough. I am committed to dismantle those systems in any way I can. My motto now is disrupt harm, love more, say sorry better, and mind your business. Oh my god. SAF team. (laughs) So good. SAF team, if you ever want a reading, please ask. I would love to give back anyway I can.
2: That is so nice. Yes. Should I shout oh out their God. work here? Should I keep it anonymous? Yes. Okay. Yes, so no, it's the, they put it there. Yeah. Please, please everybody go
1: higher yeah. H. Okay, so go to selflovetribute.com to support this H. Um Sending Love and Gratitude, Stay Safe and Rebel. H. They use they them pronouns and why are they not the host of this podcast? <laughs> oh my God. Literally, I'm obsessed like... with
2: this person. <laughs> same <laughs> That was incredible. Please what a be beautiful my letter, please! Oh my god, incredible! Love the the commitment, the the just all the words. I'm just obsessed with yes, this letter. Please write
1: a book so we can do a book club episode on your book. We'll oh come god, back I'm, and do another. I'm gonna,
2: oh my god, incredible! I'm definitely gonna look at their stuff Heck and yeah. see though do a reading because they sound like they're really tapped in yes. I'm obsessed with my motto now is disrupt harm love more say sorry better and mind your business it like really like covers it all I'm gonna tattoo really co- that on my body <laughs> <laughs> like it really covers every single thing honestly mm-hmm. Wow. Obsessed. Wow. Obsessed with you, H. Thank you so much for writing it. Yes.
1: In. Also, Lynn left a little note underneath that says, okay, this is Lynn. Can someone please read my reaction? <laughs> Which is that, one, I want a reading from this H. Two, I'm literally experiencing like a balloon in my chest reading what H wrote, especially to the members of the family. Beautiful. Also, I'm obsessed
2: with the social justice (laughs) glit. Oh my god. H, thank you so much. This is exactly the kind of letter we wanted to share with the family. Thank you for sending your love to us and to the family. And we're so glad to know that you're a part of the family and you always will be. Yes. And um if you you. want to we love you so much and please reach out anytime and uh check the show notes to write your love letter to the family but that one's gonna be don't be intimidated that one will be hard to top you could just write
1: (laughs) hard to follow for sure (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) you can just write a little note too if you want to love you h thank you so much (laughs)
1: This week on the
2: She's All Fat Patreon, Big Sister Mailbag, our weekly bonus mini for Team Paisley Moo Moo patrons,
1: the Facebook group, a party of support and talk about Belly of the Beast by Deshawn L. Harrison, get your copies now, and Epic Fat Positive Wedding Dress
2: Boutiques, our close friends story on which we post cute check-ins and occasionally include behind-the-scenes snaps sugar spice and everything fat coming to a computer or phone near you when you join our patreon at patreon.com slash she's all fat pod
1: don't miss it our patreons only open through next month until september
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was good lynn put some movie soundtrack behind that Love that okay <laughs> that's all our news for this week now here's the episode Hi Fat I am here with Savala Nolan, writer, speaker, lawyer, extraordinaire, professor, all these things. I'm so excited to talk to her about her book and her connection to justice and fat justice and racial justice. Welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself?
3: Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I am really thrilled to be with you today and to be part of the community for a moment, Um, it's very, very exciting. Mm -hmm. That's so
2: nice. Tell me about your background. What's your like bio right now? I know I mean, I know your bio, but <laughs> instead of reading it, <laughs> let's tell the family about your about your background.
3: Yeah, so I I think my bio like everyone, my bio varies a little bit depending on, you know, the audience that I'm talking to, like which parts of myself yes. I want to emphasize and underline and, and which course. I don't. But for the purposes of this particular conversation I would describe myself as a writer, an author, and as you said, a professor of law in the social justice space. Which is cool. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that was a thing you could do. That's yeah, so cool. that was a thing that you could do. And I have to say, I didn't totally know it was a thing I could do before I went to law school either. So if there's any you know people who are eyeing law school, but not sure what they can do there, one thing you can do is fight for the little guy, so to speak, and think about Privilege and power and subordination and rights and all of that stuff. So that's what I do at work. And when I have my author hat on, you know, I'm writing about the same things. I'm writing about power and privilege and who gets to do what, who gets to belong, who um, is told that they don't belong. I'm just tending to do it from a more personal perspective because I write about myself very often or my family. The book that I just published, uh, Don't Let It Get You Down, is a memoir in essays. So, you know, I'm writing about myself, but I'm writing also about the same things that I think about at work, you know, which is fundamentally who gets to belong to society and who gets pushed out and why. When I was
2: Doing my research about you, I didn't have time to listen, but I saw that you were part of creating another podcast called The Promise. Can you tell us a little bit about what that yes, was? Yes,
3: I had a really exciting job on that podcast for season two, which just won a Peabody Award this spring. Amazing, amazing! I mean, it's like the Oscars of you know journalism. Yes, <laughs> really, really <laughs> thrilling. And the story of season two is about school segregation in Nashville, Tennessee, and essentially the role of white families and white parents in sort of the way that public schools and neighborhoods thrive or don't thrive and the way that they become racially segregated despite mostly past efforts but also current efforts to desegregate them. And my role on that podcast was as an advisor and consultant. I worked with the producer... And host, who's the same person, to help her think about how to talk about race and how to think about race and these issues of racial hierarchy in a sophisticated way. Since she was really interested in the story that she wanted to tell, but her background was not in thinking about race per se. I was brought on board to just help elevate the conversation, I guess you could say, around those issues and Yeah, kind of point out maybe things that the team was missing that they, they didn't know they were missing because questions of race were not deep in their wheelhouse. So it was it was a really fantastic opportunity and everyone is so proud of the season. And of course, you know, the Peabody, like it's it's nice to be recognized, yeah.
2: right? <laughs> yeah, of course. That sounds interesting. I will have to add it to my list. Yeah, I, I
3: must say, like, even if I were not part of the team that made the season, it is a really beautiful season And it's a story that, you know, we don't talk about very often. And it's told in a a really beautiful way. So I recommend it. Yeah, that's
2: awesome. If somebody read, if somebody like was a podcast host and read your book and interviewed you and then wanted to learn more of the stuff you've written, what would you recommend they read next? I loved your book so much. I want to read way more of your writing. So what where should I go
3: next? Oh, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. I too <laughs> love my book. <laughs> but, you know, I'm pretty biased. Uh so yeah. it's nice to hear people You know who are who are in no way related to the book um, also (laughs) like it. Yes, you know I think probably some of my best writing is is in the book. I have to say just because it's some of my most recent writing. You know you get better you get better at things the more you do them. But everything that I have written for Time magazine, which I I believe it can all be found online. Uh, If you liked the book and you like thinking about race and gender and bodies and uh, how I think about those things and think of them as places where power and privilege play out in our culture, then probably everything that I've written for time would be up your alley. And also possibly a piece that I wrote for Vogue, I guess it was published about a year ago. It's funny because when you're writing a book, they want you at a certain point to sort of stop publishing things, you know, so that uh-huh. the market isn't like saturated. <laughs> saturated. Yes, exactly, so most everything I wrote that wasn't directly related to pu- publicity for the book was published like a year ago. So yeah, I would say Vogue and Time would be two good places to to check out other things that I've written.
2: Cool. We will post a bunch of those in the oh, show thank notes you. and I will thank you. read them. Yeah, of course. Yes. So now that we've introduced you, let's get into the meat of it and talk about this wonderful book. So I really enjoyed it. it. For me as a also a writer, I have not been publishing a book yet, but I've been a freelance writer and I'm working on stuff. It's like very fun to read a book that makes me want to
3: write. Do you know I what I mean? I do. And I feel the same way as a reader and writer. Yeah.
2: And this book made me want to write. It, I think it's like a really cool combo of essay and memoir. A lot of times essay and memoir together, like it, it's easy to miss the mark. Mm. And For it to become either too granular or too trying to make a statement about something wide. Do you know what I I mean? And this, like, I just really, you have some really beautiful lyrical moments in here. You have like the perfect little stories that you choose about to talk about race, gender and the body. I just really, really enjoyed it and like left it feeling like I had a good sense of you and I had so much to think about and I learned stuff and I just really highly recommend it. I've like texted like five people about it. I really liked it. So I hope you feel
3: good about it. Thank you so, so much. I mean, nothing feels better than having people read the book and respond to it, you know, and (laughs) feel um, that they either they saw themselves in the book or they had moments of revelation in the book, you know, that that's that's really terrific. And and I'm such a sucker for beautiful writing that. I'm really thankful to hear you say that you found some of the writing lyrical. It it was even in my book proposal. Like, (laughs) really? Yeah, that that I wanted to write about these really sort of intense topics, but to do it in a lyrical way because that's that's the style that I like to write in creatively. And my editor, I was very lucky that I worked with a truly superlative editor named Dawn Davis um, at Simon & Schuster. And she you know, described me when she was trying to sort of help me hone the sweet spot and like find the sweet spot between lyrical and something that, communicated information really clearly you know she she would describe this book as being like the poet and the op-ed writer like get together you know and talk about stuff and so that was kind of what I had in the back of my head that this is some somewhere between poetry and and op-eds is the space that I want to be talking about race and gender and and the body in
2: it feels like that I want to read okay so speaking of the lyrical parts I want to read something that Like, this is a part that is, like, very beautiful, and yet it's, like, it almost feels bad to call this beautiful because it's about uh, slavery. Mm. Okay, so on page 37. So, again, the book is Don't Let It Get You Down, essays on race, gender, and the body. That kind of tells you what everything's about. But, okay, so page 37, you say... It's hard to describe how the particular resignation of American blackness sometimes feels. If only you could stop time and disappear, sliding through that tiny rip to which you pressed your eye years ago when you were little. What you saw made no sense to you. It was the past, yet you were the present. Candlelit ships on Atlantic waters, the so-called new world green at the horizon, sex and men's season, rotting flesh. And is that the sound of a violin? Yes, many violins played for entertainment above deck played for sorrow below played so loud for so long that we would continue to hear them even if they stopped played for the men like my father who had to wonder whether his blackness intimidated his own grandchild. Like that's so I was like, oh, my God, Mm. (laughs) that's so good writing and so like heavy. I had to like reread it like three times. It was
3: so good. Thank you. I love that. Yes. I mean, that's in a nutshell. That's kind of how how I write. I'm trying to um, be sensory and and poetic, even as I write about things that are quite concrete. Like in that piece, what it what it sometimes feels like to be black and descended from slaves and enslaved people in this culture. Yeah. I
2: mean obviously as a very white person, I don't relate to that part, but the even just the metaphor of this, the idea of looking at the past through a tiny rip that you have this idea when you're young and you kind of see something and you get a feel of it. Like it just I it really it struck me. It's accurate. It's good. Ah, thank, I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> so what parts of this book felt scary to you to write? And what parts of it felt like an exhale, if any of them did?
3: You know, I think by the end, everything felt like an exhale. I write about friendships that are interracial and that have had to deal with or else be broken by racial hierarchy I write about dieting and fatness and thinness I write about sex and desire and state power and my family's history of enslavement and enslaving since I also have slaveholders in my family all of it was hard to write about honestly because it's quite personal and because the topics are heavy you know yeah but by the time I got to the end of each piece, I felt that I had written as close to the bone as I possibly could, like I had cut as deep mm-hmm. as I as I could in terms of getting to the emotional truth of what I was trying to say when I'm writing about the role of state violence in my father's life or the really violent impact that dieting had you know in my life and how it was racialized in my family yeah and knowing that I had taken the time to be as thorough and exacting and precise as I wanted to be I think allowed me to trust what I had written you know by the end and not feel afraid I mean another thing that that of course helped was this book is quite vulnerable. You know, it's a memoir. I guess yeah. all memoirs are vulnerable to some extent. But I listen to my own internal boundaries. You know, there are details that are not in the book or yeah. things about my birth experience, for instance, which was quite devastating that are not in the book because, you know, maybe I wrote them in there in an early draft, but I never quite was comfortable with that one little detail, you know, being in there. And because I could take it out and and still have the piece be complete and full and honest, it wasn't essential to have it in. And I listened yeah. to my own boundaries. And that, I think, enabled me to be much more comfortable with the vulnerability in the book than I would have been if I hadn't listened to my own boundaries and I felt like I just had to sort of parade every detail of my life and pain and joy, you know, before the reader's eyes. Which can be how it feels, like, especially in not, I don't know about lot long, more
2: long term, but like, especially the, the freelance writing. Yes. Arena of the last like 10 years, it felt like that's what you were supposed to do. Yes,
3: like highly confessional and kind yeah. of if it bleeds, it leads. So like, yes, how <laughs> much sort of um, shock factor can you pump into this Piece about something. Certainly, like, in the age of kind of, like, internet writing and freelancing, I think that's probably just, like, increasingly part of the puzzle. And I had some freedom because I had so much time, you know, when you write a book, it's like, it's like three years between when you sign the contract and when it's in the bookstore. And I had an editor and I could pace myself through the pieces and pay really close attention to the things that I needed to say in order to communicate precisely what I wanted to, to the reader. And what I actually could hold back for myself, because it, it uh, felt too tender and also not essential. I mean, the things that felt both tender and essential are in the book, right? That's that's yeah. what makes it what it is, but certain things are not there as well. It's interesting to hear you say that because that's one of the
2: things I wrote down to talk to you about is that I feel like you're really hard on yourself <laughs> in a lot of vulnerable moments
3: in here. That's interesting because... uh so I guess I'm going to toot my own horn. The book got a really great review in the New York Times, which was fantastic. Yeah. And and the reviewer said the same thing, that sometimes I'm too hard on myself. God. I mean, maybe I am. You know, I don't know. It, it could be uh, that I didn't write it well enough, you know, so I didn't, uh, that I didn't clarify. No, it's not
2: that at all. It's not that at all. It's just, I think you ask yourself and the reader a lot of questions and it's very clear the moments where you're like, well, don't think I figured that out yet. Like, wish I had. Keep working on it, I guess. And I found myself being like, oh my God, I hope she knows she's
3: okay. Like, this is fine. (laughs) She's doing so good. Oh man, thank you for saying that. Yeah, Because it was really important to me to have the freedom to say what I really truly felt around race and gender as someone who is... Neither male nor white, you know, and therefore speaking to power, right? Because it was really important for me to feel that I could do that with full integrity. I also needed to be willing to question my own assumptions and, you know, think critically about how I show up in spaces too. You know, I didn't I didn't want to do that externally if I wasn't doing it internally. Totally. But yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I actually I have not read the whole book through since it was published. I have flipped through it, of course. But maybe I will the next time I read it, I'll be looking for places where I was possibly too hard on myself.
2: I mean, I think a lot of them it's just what you're saying. It's just that you you're very upfront about self-examination and uh, external examination and you're very fair to the other people in your stories Mm -hmm. who maybe don't deserve the fairness honestly (laughs) so like I think that combines
3: to be like "Mm, she's really examining everyone it's really you (laughs) know thank you Um, (laughs) I don't know if you have read Kelsey Miller, she wrote a book called Big Girl, and she did the anti-diet project at Refinery29. So she and I are not friends. I'm not name dropping. But I did email her just like through her website at one point, asking her kind of like a a sort of a question about when you write about other people and you write about your family, because she did that with Big Girl. And I was doing it with this book. And I just thought, you know, what the hell? I reached out to some writers and some of them got back to me and some didn't. She did and one of the things that she said to me that was impactful and that I thought about a lot was when you are writing about other people, consider your motivation very carefully and reconsider it. <laughs> yeah, it's clear you did. Like with everyone. Yeah. And I and I did. I really took that to heart because your motivation can lead you away from the truth, right? If your motivation is to sort of protect someone, then you can be too soft on them. If your motivation yeah. is to grind an ax, then you can be too convicting and too hard, you know? So I I did that a lot. That was really good advice as a writer. And uh, I thank her yeah. for it.
2: It's nice to read a book where it's so... I I don't know, just like everything's out there, like you thinking through it, you think telling us how you thought through it, like all those things come across very clearly, which obviously like that's a sign of good writing because otherwise, you know, it seems more murky and – You're not supposed to be able to see the many, many rounds of editing, Mm, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, which you can't see. But like in some of the early chapters where you talk about like specifically white men or other men you've tried to date or dated. And then there's one part where you're like talking about a memory and you're like, well, that's that's my memory, at least like that's how I think it happened. And I was like, dang, Mm. like. That's such a good <laughs> point, <laughs> like how smart to leave that in there, because it is like, you know, obviously the things that you said are true to you and also a, a version of what happened. But that's, you know, what my therapist says is we all have different experiences <laughs> of, of events. Yeah, you know? we
3: do indeed. And memory is. You know, it's like a watercolor. It's not, the lines are not always super crisp. You know what I mean? Yes. And so, of course, I stand behind everything that I said and and everything that I said is true, you know, to the best of my recollection and knowledge. But I think, you know, anyone who's writing about themselves based on their memory has to acknowledge that other people may remember things differently and... You know, there are no composites in this book. Like it's, it's accurate. You know, it's as accurate as I could possibly make it. Let's put it that way. And it's exact, you know, as exact as I could make it rather than sort of making a collage of people into one person or, or whatever, which is something people yes. do. And that's fine. You know, it's yes. definitely a tool of memoir to do that. But it's not one that I use. And I, I, I tried when there were places where I was, really aware that somebody might remember it differently or that my own memory was maybe shaky. You know, I just said that. I just said, this is how I remember it or I think this is what happened, you know, and go from there.
2: I noted it. As the thing I wanted to keep in my toolbox. Ah, That's all I'm saying. Thank you. I, I wish
3: I could say who exactly I got it from. I mean, I think I got it from a bunch of people. It's not like my own invention, you know. Yes. But it was part of what I wanted to do in terms of considering my motivations for how I talked about people and being as truthful and as as sort of clean as I could be with the information that I was yes. I was giving readers.
2: I haven't ever done this before, but I kind of want to go through the titles of your chapters and let people know, like, what some of these chapters are more about. Cause I feel like I've talked very generally okay. so far. And then there's a couple things I want to, a couple details I want to delve in on and talk about cool. too. So let's see. So on dating white guys while well me, that's like what we just talked yes. about. That one is pretty self explanatory. Don't let it get you down, which the title is from, which I did want to ask you about, where basically you get told by, another black person don't let it get you down about stuff that happens mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. world white doll where your mom gives your daughter a white doll and you talk about that and representation dear white sister which i read twice well where you talk about your fight with a friend who wouldn't stop claiming beyonce <laughs> lyrics basically mm-hmm. uh, bad education and to wit and also which are mostly about your daughter is that right and your dad?
3: Uh let's see. Bad education is about the tension that I have felt as someone who, you know, calls myself a feminist and yet watches entertainment that is <laughs> Oh yes, S U. Pretty violent toward women. Like it's about sort of wrestling yes. that duality. And to wit and also is about being uh the descendant of slaves and slaveholders. And sort of just discovering that through genealogy,
2: yes, which has some very striking moments in it. And state is about your dad and the way that the state and being in prison and etc. affected him. And race, Mm -hmm. nearly not quite, is about. I'm like literally flipping through the (laughs) book. I want people to read this so desperately. Me too. Oh my God, Nearly Not Quite It's about you going to a – oh my God, your view on this white couple at this fancy resort, which really made me think about like the ways that I have shown up or not in in fancy spaces like mm-hmm. that and like how I might have been seen on the sources of cultural identity, which is about your relation with Italian, et cetera, and Mexico. And then at the end of the book, you got some more about – body stuff the body endures and fat in ways white girls don't understand so as you can see it listeners it really is like a bunch of different memoir slash topics that i think most of the listeners of this podcast are really interested in okay so let's go back to don't let it get you down which i wanted to ask mm. you why you made that the title like if that's how you feel about the stuff in general in the book if that if it's more like a tongue in cheek like that's I guess how we're supposed to feel kind
3: of thing or like what do you feel about the title well let me start with this story that I tell in the book yes and then I, I can expand on on why it's the title so it is indeed something that was said to me by my hairdresser who is an older black man probably fifteen years older than me. Older older enough that I consider him an elder more than a peer. And let's see, it must have been about five years ago, I was at the salon getting my hair done and just kind of cruising through my phone, you know, having a perfectly lovely day. And I saw the headline on my news app that the cops who killed Tamir Rice were not going to be prosecuted. And for those who don't remember, Tamir Rice was a young boy, a black boy who was playing with a toy gun in a park. And someone called 911. And the sort of striking thing, I think, about what uh, happened to him was that the cops sort of screeched up to him at the park. And within two seconds, they fired um, their weapons and killed him. And it was sort of the two seconds that seemed to... in people's mind that it it all happened so incredibly fast to this boy. Yes. So uh, I saw the headline that they were not going to be prosecuted and I just, you know, this wave of kind of very familiar anxiety and pain kind of washed over me. And my hairdresser noticed and he said, You know, what's going on? I explained it to him. And he explained that they were not going to prosecute these cops. There wasn't going to be accountability. And he took a breath and he said, Don't let it get you down. Don't let it get you down. He said it twice. And he said it almost um, sternly, like there was quite a bit of weariness and force in his voice. It wasn't the kind of like, oh, don't let it get Mm. you down. Like you got this girl. You know, there was nothing um, peppy or bright or flip about it. It was very, very heavy. And what I realized was happening in that moment was that an older black person was offering me a survival strategy, a strategy, you know in a situation with very high stakes because if you're black or you know take your pick of marginalized groups in this country and you you dwell in the pain you let if you let it get you down you may never get up it's so overwhelming it's so relentless it's so unavenged you know That you may never get back up. And so he meant it as a survival strategy and um, not at all to say ignore what's wrong or pretend that the pain isn't there, you know, pretend that there's no injustice, but hold on tight enough to your own humanity that in the face of dehumanizing things, that you can stay on your feet. That's how he meant it. And that's primarily how I mean it, you know. Hold on to your dignity tightly enough that you do not have to live on your knees, despite how painful life can be. That's how I mean it as the title of the book.
2: Wow. I'm so glad I asked you to explain. I wouldn't have Oh, good. that. Well, there's a, there's
3: quickly. a tiny bit more, which is just that like, you know, there's another way in which I almost could have put a question mark at the end of that phrase, because if I'm speaking to like the more privileged aspects of myself as a cisgendered person, as an able bodied person, you know, take your pick or people who hold a lot yeah. of privilege and power in society because they are white men, for instance. It's kind of like, well, actually, maybe you should let it get you down. Yeah. Like maybe you you actually should dwell in in the status quo of the horribly, horribly unfair ways that we allocate safety and well-being and concern for each other in this culture and let it bring you to your knees and hang out there for a little bit so that we can have a a better chance of a more equitable world yes. because you will be engaged on a deeper level too. So it's a complex yes. phrase and and I mean it in a complex way.
2: Love it.
1: Perfect. <laughs> oh, good, Wow.
2: Great <laughs> good, answer. Good, good. Okay. For
3: the final third
2: of the meat of it, I have a couple parts that are more body related that I want yeah. to go to as this is. She's yep. in the fat. Okay. So f- first of all, I'm definitely not able to talk about this as an expert or even as like a fellow super educated person about this. But I think for me and for other people who might not be educated like me, the connections and the things that you talk about about the mammy stereotype or I don't even think stereotypes the right word, just like the caricature
3: the maybe. Idea of,
2: yeah. Yeah. The caricature of a mammy and your relationship to it was really like clarifying for me I obviously like knew about it but to hear you talk about your relationship to how and how that has affected you was like very it was like a really easy way to understand and I don't know just like get it and like feel more as a as a again this is from a white perspective because I can't connect you know I'm not connecting this to my experience in any way, but like I was like, oh, now I feel like I'm more empowered to talk about this with other white people because I feel like I get Mm. this better now. There's a little part here I want to read. Basically, in most listeners I bet will know this, but the caricature of Mammy is like one from American slave history of like a large black woman who wants to take care of white children, basically. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Is that like a good way to... Summarize it for
3: for people. I think that's a it's I mean, yes, in a a little nutshell. That's the basic idea.
2: Yes. Okay, so you go through and you explain it. And then at the end here, I want to read from page 183. Domestic labor is the work we honor least. It's the work we don't value and often don't pay, sometimes refuse even to see. It's caring for children, for the elderly, for the sick and the well. It's vile, picking hardened food off pans with fingernails, scrubbing smears of shit from the toilet bowl, sniffing clothes to see if they're dirty, emptying trash bins of wax caked Q-tips and bloody tampons. It's also pleasurable, roasting crispy skinned chicken and gold potatoes, icing three layer cakes for birthdays, pouring warm bath water down a toddler's back. Smoothing fresh sheets across mattresses, picking garden flowers for a vase. Vile or pleasurable, this work is devalued. I can't help that my large black vagina-having body is inscribed with this vile and pleasurable work. I can't help that my body may read like a mammy to you, but I'm as vain as any woman must be. NARS jungle red, Louis Vuitton bag, shade pits, and all that. Okay, more, and then I'm skipping ahead a little. When I stride to the podium, heels clicking, to begin my remarks or convene a meeting at the end of the table, the boss doesn't take notes so I don't have a pen, I feel not only my genuine meanness, of which I am proud, but my mamminess, I feel you feeling my mamminess too. I feel her and it and you every day, not all day, every day, but every day. She is the part of fat black womanhood that I don't like. Or should I say you are the part I don't like. You who created and recreate Mammy with your lack of imagination, your lack of critical analysis. She's not to blame. She isn't even real. But I do blame her. That's how it works. She's how I'm fat in ways that white girls don't understand. Mm. Mm. Period. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) That was like... Yes, I. I mean, obviously, I can't relate to the mammy part, but the I deeply relate to the sense of there being an i cultural idea about my body out there that the, I know someone else is thinking when they look at me and hating that, and then hating that I hate mm-hmm, that for mm-hmm. sure.
3: Yes, I, I mean,
2: talk to me about that. Uh, part. Yeah, I mean,
3: I. Uh, you know, Lindy West wrote a wonderful article. A number of years ago about the smallness, like the very tiny catalog of fat women that she saw as a child modeled, you know, for her. Right. Yes. That one's in her essay collection. Is it in the book too? Okay. Yes. So, and she talks about, you know, like Ursula in The Little Mermaid yes. and like I think Lady <laughs> Cluck from Robin Hood. Like, you know, that there were like <laughs> Miss Piggy. Yeah. That yeah. there's just it, it, like compared to the vast and numerous variety of roles and depictions of thin women. The roles and depictions of fat women are just incredibly slim and often, no pun intended, uh, often (laughs) very like negative, right? Like they're not complicated, soulful people. They're sort of these flattened caricatures or they're evil or, you know, they're just so... I honor all of that. And I add that when you're also black, like the pool is even smaller because the, the primary depiction of fat black women in our culture, as you said, you know, when we first started talking about this is of the, the mammy aunt Jemima is sort of a classic image of a mammy that you know folks can think of kind of a a robust rotund happily servile black woman who is at once kind of sassy and also docile because she's not agitating for anything more than her lowly domestic role she's happy to be making pancakes you know that is that fulfills her ambition And if you happen to be fat and black and female, and maybe this is less true now, I think it is less true now, but certainly in the 80s, that was it. (laughs) Like, Mammy was what you saw as far as who can I be in the culture? And that piece, you know, it's about the fact that even today, you know, even among really progressive people, we all carry that image of Mammy and that kind of story about a big, black, sassy woman who's strong and kind of has a lot of attitude. You know, like, we carry that very flattened, compressed caricature in us and then we project it onto people we think somehow match up with it. Yes. And for fat people, like, my God, there's so many things people think when they see fat bodies. Yes. So yeah, like I am by no means saying that no one else endures this. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't think that
2: at all. Just that I can't talk to the mammy part, but was very, I was like, oh, yes. I mean, it just, it helped connect it to me. I mean, sometimes this is like very, I'm whatever. I'm white. I don't know how I'm so white, but as a white person, it can feel sometimes like it disrespectful to try to relate to black experiences. Do you know what
3: I, you know what I mean? I do. Like, I mean, I don't know I don't from personal like, experience, but I know enough white people who have either said that or just revealed that through their actions that I, I can see that it must well, be true. It's
2: like, <laughs> It can feel, it can feel like, you know, we did this and now I don't like, what right do I have to be like, Oh, I relate to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But like that, description of like well you know this is really about the narratives that you've put on me it was like it like for some reason that really helped it sink home for me of like what I was like oh okay it's exactly the same as like what I feel just in a different way and like this makes sense to me and blah blah blah, like this specific caricature. (laughs) yeah I I mean let's be crystal
3: clear like there's as as you know, there's nothing wrong with being fat and black and female. Like there's yes, nothing wrong with yes, any of those of individual course. characteristics or with all of them combined in one person. It's yes. the narrative about what we make those things mean that uh-huh. causes the problem. Like the problem is not me. That's not where the problem's located. No. The problem is located in the mythology and the culture about what a fat black woman is and what she's like and what she's capable of. And in our culture that, again, I think maybe it's changing a bit, at least at the margins. But when I was younger and when I was forming my sense of self and when I was gazing at the culture, you know, for the first time, trying to see where I belonged by seeing where the people who were like me belonged, The only thing I saw was Mammy, this character who is happy to serve and who is relegated to the kind of service that we don't actually care about, right? Which is why I talk about domestic work being the kind of work that we take for granted and if we even see it. You know, if we even see it at all.
2: Absolutely. I really think the Mammy caricature, like, I mean, anybody, as as I tell everyone, read Fearing the Black yes. Body. But as, you know, that caricature is like a super great example of the... The white narrative or white gaze's connection between womanhood, femininity, blackness, fatness, and what's expected of those things. It's kind of like the example. It's like a very clear, you know what I mean? It's like, it makes it, it's like, oh, this is the pinnacle of those expectations. Yeah, it all
3: collides. It all collides. And one of the things yes. that the book Fearing the Black Body, I love, uh, the author Sabrina Strings makes the beautiful observation in the book that fat phobia you know and black anti-black racism overlap a lot in our culture yes and you know accordingly fat phobia is used to denigrate black women and to control white women and i mean we could get we could spend an hour just on on that but yes those realities do collide in the mammy stereotype and in the fact that mammy is serving white people, right? Like that she's subservient to the white people she serves and happy to be subservient in the mythology, right? And the echoes
2: out from there are clear, like even, you know, every fat girl who did middle school theater was like, oh, yeah, I was always the caretaker role or the nurse or whatever. Like that's an echo from this, you know, that's not even for even for non-black people that's like an echo from this experience in this caricature. yes
3: it is it is it is and um yeah I mean I I was either the nurse or the like sassy black woman yep
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes I was the nurse or the caretaker or a couple times I screamed when other people oh die. yeah at that least, at least you got to portray emotion time. right <laughs> Real. <laughs> well, I didn't have a name. That was about it. I just screamed in Oliver
3: Twist when someone's found it. I don't even remember. I mean, the thing that's interesting, and I will say this just as almost like an appetizer, hoping that people who mm-hmm. find it interesting, you know, will like pick up Sabrina Strings book or whatever. A yes. lot of the stereotypes that people have about fatness are The same ones people have about blackness, that it's about that there's laziness there, that it's abnormal or somehow wrong or different or dangerous, that there's a lack of civility and a lack of self-mastery, a lack of intelligence. I mean, it's not an accident that these things overlap that there's a a sensuality or sexuality that is troubling you know it shows up in blackness as being sort of hypersexual and it shows up in fatness as like almost you know the like we've all can sort of recognize having seen a scene in a movie or a tv show where like the size and sexuality of the fat person is going to sort of gobble up the little person, you know? Yes. That like the little skinny guy or or quote unquote normal sized guy is going to somehow get kind of lost and devoured by the sexuality of the fat person's body. Yes. So it's like a deviant sexuality, right? So there's a lot of overlap and it's not coincidental. And there is a historical record of cultural artifacts that, show how the overlap developed and was used politically. And so I do encourage people to seek that out. I don't talk about it so much in my book. But there are sources that really, really dive into it.
2: Well, as long, long time listeners know, last season, we did a book club with a bunch of questions every week about fearing the black body. So those are still on the website, if anybody's a new listener and wants to go read along with those. Because I think You should. (laughs) Everyone should. Okay, I have one more little point I want to talk about before we get to the end. Yeah. One thing you talk about very early in the book is your feet, which I found really interesting. Okay, so let me let me again read my little quote. Okay. This is page seven in the chapter on dating white guys while me. My feet have always struck me as my tell of otherness, even more than my nose or hair or weight. No matter the private schools, the white-sounding voice, the white-sounding name, or how I put white people at ease, especially rich white people, my feet seem to cast me out of belonging, if only in my mind, which is enough. Years ago, my uncle saw me barefoot and said, I'd love to have those big, wide bare paws. He said it admiringly, but looking down at my bare paws pressing heavily into the wood kitchen floor, I flushed. I was maybe 10 when I couldn't play wear my mom's shoes anymore. And somehow that day encapsulated something horribly wrong about me to myself. I was just a child, but I had outgrown my own mother. So a couple of things stood out to me from this. First of all, just overall, it's always interesting to me what the things are physically that like individually bother people or stick in their head about their mm-hmm, own bodies mm-hmm. because – you know, like for me, it's that when I was in eighth grade, an orthodontist told me I needed to break and reset my jaw, or else my chin would never be attractive. And I was like,
3: "What?" <laughs> and like, "Wow, <laughs> thanks for shattering my innocence, buddy."
2: <laughs> I mean, I just had never. Th- I was like, "Oh, I never knew to be. I didn't know my chin. I didn't know I needed to be self conscious yeah, about. You know, a lot. like that was." A- <laughs> but like you know, so I've always been self conscious about that, even despite nobody else ever saying anything to me about it, you know? And so there's so many things like that where it's like you get sent these messages about some particular thing, whereas I like, I read that and I was like, I have never, ever looked at someone's feet and been like, her feet are too bit. You know what I mean? Like ever. It's never occurred to me. But obviously it's like a, a still an accurate experience for you. It's just so funny because I don't I also don't think someone would look at me and be like, you know, she's cool, but her chin, am I right? Yeah, you know I mean, I having mean? just like,
3: looked at you, like <laughs> I have to say, I thought nothing of your chin. I thought, wow, what a pleasant, <laughs> lovely face, but nothing of your chin whatsoever.
2: I know. It's just, it's so, those things like that kind of comment, like those big wide bear paws, and then you thought about that forever.
3: I know you thought you did, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, yeah, I guess it's a quirk of mine that my feet are the location where all of these sort of lies about my body that I learned from the culture and these insecurities that were cultivated in me landed you know yeah it could have been somewhere else you know that's a quirk that it happens to be my feet and that as a result I've spent a lot of my life hiding my feet you know wearing shoes that were too small so that my feet didn't look as big you know keeping my feet under blankets you know all that type of thing hiding them especially from men somewhere Mm -hmm. I got it in my head that a beautiful girl has dainty feet. You know, it was probably Disney. It was probably Cinderella. Yeah. Cinderella. <laughs> you know? It's like, you, yeah. you don't actually have to reach yeah. that far before you're like, Oh, I see where that no. came from. Still like it's a quirk of mine, but I do think it's probably pretty universal especially among like women-identified people, but probably among everyone to have a part of their body that they are used to hiding or they're self-conscious about because they think that it reveals something unappealing or unattractive about them that they don't want the world to see, you know?
2: I'm sure many people are listening right now going like, oh my God, I'm so glad she's talking about her feet. Like, I feel that way too. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure there are people who, like, a lot of people have the same thing because- when I have talked about my chin before, I had two people message me and be like, oh, my God, that happened to me, too. Like, our chins are uh, fine. Your chins are
3: fine. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. You, you, It's funny that that's your thing because my best friend of 25 <laughs> years, I don't think she's still caught up in this whirlwind of, you know, madness. But for a long time, she was extremely self-conscious about her chin, which... You know, I just uh-huh. it was like inexplicable to me. But to her, it symbolized yep. <laughs> some way that she was not compliant with what a woman or a girl is yes. supposed to be like. So, yeah, you know. Yes.
2: Yeah. It just was like to me, the thing about your feet is just like a perfect example of like, yep. But even if you got thin, you know what I mean? Even if you were... You snapped your fingers and you were thin, your feet would still be big. Like, it would still be...
3: I mean, I am someone who, because I dieted for 30 years, has been fat and thin many times, you know? Same. Yes. And I'm fat now, and I think that's probably just pretty much where my body will be, you know? Because that... Because I've done all the healing... Or not all the healing, but I've done so much healing and divestment, and this is just my body. But... It's true. Even when I was my thin self, your feet are your feet. You can't really take inches off your yeah. feet. <laughs> like, no.
2: Not at all. You can pull evil stepsisters from Cinderella from the musical version and cut off the back of your heels. That, but that's you know, about or it. you
3: can <laughs> buy shoes that are two sizes too small and be in terrible pain. Oh, you God. know. But no, don't do that. So bad for your toenails. Unfortunately, I already, you know, it's already, it's done. It's our, I already did it. But uh, (laughs) yes, we all have those things. Unfortunately, we all have them.
2: Yes. Okay. And then just to wrap up talking about this section, I want to read from it. it, This is a spoiler because I'm reading from the last page. But okay. So this last chapter is called Little Satin Bomber Body. And you talk about, you know, an experience every person has about not wanting to get rid of a jacket that doesn't fit anymore etc right that's the bomber yeah like a a thin
3: (laughs) a thin clothing your thin jeans or whatever yes yeah yes exactly
2: we all have that thing the thing we don't want to give up so at the end you get told by your godfather to lose weight and then you say Telling him that I've stopped dieting, I'm determined never to go back to it, was impossible. I don't diet anymore, Papa Max, so I may never lose weight. He wouldn't understand any more than I understand, really, a female Trump voter. Which is to say, this vivid, prismatic Pangea I've discovered outside the cave, this crew of renegade women in the wilderness, building big fires and stone cairns and hollering at the moon, jumping the outlines of mountains and laughing in the rivers, who felt liberation, who've sucked it into themselves and blown it back out to others, like the blast of foghorns, who've dug pitch black graves and dropped the jangling ropes of dieting into them and pissed on them, who are fat and happy, fat and free, doing just fine. This place is illegible to him, and sometimes to me, though I live there now, fat as a motherfucker, or at least I live close enough to smell the smoke from their campfires and see the firelight through the pines and to hear them calling, over here, come on, every day and night. my God. I got – I feel like I'm sound – I sound like I'm sponsored, but I literally got goosebumps reading it. I love that. I got him again. Brought to you by Simon & Schuster. I mean, I just love that description of, because I I mean, even as somebody who is, you know, deep in this, I've been doing this podcast for a long time. I still sometimes feel that way, like on the outs, like I'm still heading, trying to head into true freedom, body, you know, body freedom and all that. Yeah, me too. But I loved that description of what, is promised for us, and what it can be. And that is how it feels. That is how it feels. <laughs> That's, you know, it's so good. I want us all to get to that
3: wild place. Yeah, it's, it's a wilderness. Yeah, I speak mostly on behalf of female identified people, because I think the hammer comes down so hard on us. But it's not just us, you know, so I don't mean to be exclusive when I say this. But I also do want to emphasize the the particularity with which female identified people deal with it like it is a wilderness to yes if you decide you're going to be okay with being fat or simply stop renovating your body yes (laughs) and just fucking live in it you know like that's a great. You way are to stepping put it. into God. a wilderness, and I too, you know, sometimes I am deep in the wilderness and loving it, and sometimes I feel like I'm not quite there, and I'm just glimmering the light of it through the trees. You know, it it ebbs and flows. Yes, it ebbs and flows. It does for all of us because we still have to
2: live in this goddamn yeah. fucking
3: world. Yes. <laughs> to put it <laughs> put it simply, <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and letting me have uh, my own book club of one and you, which was great for me because I loved this book so much. Congratulations on writing thank you. it. And I hope it continues to do really well. Please let the fat bully know how can we support you and your work besides following you on Instagram at Not Quite beyonce and Twitter at Savala tweets. How else can we support you?
3: I'm way more active on, on Instagram than Twitter, but technically I am on both. Um, Savala Nolan is my website. You know, the, I, I post events and there will be book club questions there soon. Perhaps already by the Ooh. time this airs, they will be there. They're being refined right now. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, head to your library, check out the book, buy the book, tell your friends if that's your thing. If you don't like it, that's fine, too. Everything ain't for everybody. <laughs> Yeah. I just hope the book finds the people who need it and, and and who will like it. And so thank you so much for the chance to hang out and talk about the book and put a little more sunlight on it. It's been really fun.
2: Yay. I love it. And I am sure the family will love it. And I hope you get a couple more readers from this episode. Um, we will have the link for the book to, I think we use a bookshop or other another indie thing in the show notes and to those pieces we mentioned earlier and to your book up questions if they are up by the time the episode comes out and also of course to all of your social so fat be sure to check this out email me about it i'm not on social so you can't message me about it but email me about it if you liked it because i want to talk to more people about it and yeah thank you so much for being on the show it's my pleasure thank you And that's
1: the episode. Are you a fat person with ADHD? Call into the voicemail box at 213-375-5023 and tell us about
2: your experience. We're working on a voice memo mini-sode and we want to hear all sorts of different experiences and thoughts about being a fat person with ADHD like moi. That's 213-375-5023. Can't wait to hear from ya. (laughs) in a world where you leave us an apple podcast review basically that world is when i pull up apple podcast to see if we have a new review i see yours i smile i text the team about it exterior scene (laughs) interior scene (laughs) cut smash cut (laughs) and you
1: can make that a reality by going to apple podcast and looking up she's all fat and leaving five stars baby and we can't forget to shout out our patrons thank you too Cuddles Huckle Bunny, Eleanor Quant, April F. Hahn, and Rochelle Delaney.
2: We could not make the show without you. Bye! Bye. She's All Fat was created by me, Sophie Carter khan and April K. quio who graduated. We are an independent production. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com/slash she's all fat pod. When you pledge to be a supporter, you'll get all sorts of goodies and extra content please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super important in making sure people find the show so we can grow the family. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the stuff we mentioned today. And don't forget to send us your questions at fyi at she'sallfatpod.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 213-375-5023, and we might even play it on the pod. Our episode ads are done in partnership with ACAST. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can get started at acast.com. Our theme music was composed and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our website was designed by Jesse Fish, and our logo is by Hannah Sanger. Lynn Barbera co-produced and edited this episode. Yeli Cruz is our magical junior producer. Our thin crony forever is Maria Bertel. I'm our host and co-producer. Our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter handles are at She's All Fat Pod. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay safe. We
0: love you.